This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome back to the Talking Hockey Podcast, where obviously we talk hockey. Um, we're going to be talking primarily about uh, the Vancouver Canucks today because we have a very special guest that I'll let Eric introduce since he's the one that uh, worked to get him on. We're also going to talk a little bit about what's kind of currently happening in the season, um, a little bit more about how young writers can get involved with the NHL because uh, we have a, a really great writer here who's young and working for The Athletic. Um, but I'll let Eric introduce him now, but we're really excited for this episode. It's our first guest appearance on this. Uh, podcast so we're honored to have him here but Eric take it away yeah so we have uh, Harmon Dial with us he's um, a, hawk, a staff writer for the athletic he mainly covers the uh, Vancouver Canucks um, and he's 20 years old which is kind of insane like we were just talking about before we started reporting here but like he's really young and he's already a full-time writer for the athletic so uh, just to start off basically uh, how are you doing with all this coronavirus craziness like how are you doing with the quarantine and everything um i'm doing pretty well all things considered um thanks for having me on i uh i think the good weather more than anything kind of helps the the yeah. fact that we can at least um you know at least my neighborhood's pretty quiet so i'm able to go out for walks and just get a little bit of fresh air now and uh, now and and then uh, versus it uh, i think it'd be a lot tougher if it was if it was like november december raining pouring like i don't know um where you guys are are located at and what the how how the weather is for you guys but um i think that just kind of lifts the mood a little bit um but otherwise yeah it, it it just i i can imagine just like with honestly more than anything just um feeling happy and blessed to to be healthy yeah like in toronto right now it's like is it, it was blizzard earlier today. It was yeah. raining all day yesterday. Oh, wow. There was a storm in Quebec that knocked out like everyone's internet and power. And I don't know. It's just like wow. crazy. It's, yeah. it's not rain. Where you live in. Yeah, it was funny. We're, we're lucky here because it's it's um, like fifteen to twenty degrees every day, sunny. Oh so. my God, what the I heck, dude? <laughs> I want to I want to live in Vancouver so badly. Like I love Vancouver. Today it was. Uh, I had a morning video call with my coworkers and it was like beautiful in my neighborhood. But one guy said it was snowing and everyone else is like, it's a beautiful day outside. Then my dad's like, it's uh, about like 1 PM. It was a huge blizzard. And wow. but now it's sunny again and, and it's another beautiful day. So I don't, who knows, man, Canadian weather all yes. over. <laughs> yeah. All over the map. Yeah. It's kind of ridiculous. Like, I don't know. Like I'm like, I saw on Twitter, you posted about how you have your <laughs> isolation beard <laughs> growing. Yeah. Up. <laughs> and yeah. I've, I've been doing the same too. Like I've never had it. This same here. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's no reason to, uh, no reason to really trim or anything like that. Cause you don't have to go out and see anyone anyways. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so let's, let's get started here. Um, so how did you get started in uh, writing? So how can we kind of just want to hear a little bit about your like journey from, 
writing blog to basically writing for the athletic kind of like just tell us a little bit about that i find it like super interesting yeah i think um it originally started i believe i was in grade nine so around 14 years old and i would just tweet a lot about the canucks um and i think someone at the time um there's kind of like a a blog um, local to the area and i think they actually recently um, sort of spread out and expanded to Toronto area as well. Um, right now it's called Daily Hive. Uh, before okay, it was yeah. called Van City Buzz sort of originated here. And um, it's kind of like an all-encompassing blog that kind of covers what's going on in the city. Um, and sports was part of the areas that they wanted to expand and start covering. And so they asked me if I, um, if I was able to write and um and so i did that once in a while uh, obviously at that point i didn't really have much experience so i didn't do it regularly i maybe wrote once every two three months um and if i'm being quite honest it wasn't very good but um you just started building reps from there and then um my senior year of high school so when i was 18 i decided i wanted to take it a little bit more seriously um i figured out that i really had a passion for writing about hockey and um, I just started, um, I reached out to another blog, I think it was the Canuck way, um, and sort of showed my sample of work that I'd done at, at Daily Hive and, and asked them if I could just start blogging more regularly, more consistently. Uh, so from that point on, I wrote weekly for them uh, through my grade 12 year. Um, and through that year, I was really fortunate, my work just kind of um, caught a lot of people's attention and my name started getting out there a little bit more and more. Um, and as that happened, I started moving up in the blogosphere. So, so moved up from the Canuck way to Canucks misconduct. Um, and then by the end of that season to uh, Canucks army. Um, and so in that year, I kind of was able to set a, a pretty good foundation for myself. Um, and then going into first year university, I, I honestly just pitched a freelance story to the athletic um, I think it was, it was one of my best ideas. Like even, even to date, I'm really proud of that article. I think it was kind of looking at the analytics and video of Jake Furtanen and why zone entry playmaking would have to be the key for him to unlock his potential. And uh, so that article performed well. And, and from there, I was really fortunate. Um, the main beat writer there, Jason Botchford, he kind of took me under his wing um, he really gave me an opportunity to continue pitching freelance stories there. And um, yeah, so last year I, I, I would write freelance um, for them. And, um, and thanks to Botch and, and um, a lot of other people in, in the media industry who helped me out. That was when, so grade 12 was kind of setting the foundation. Um, and then um, last year was, I was able to really start to pop off and, and sort of have a, have a little bit of a platform. And, and so that's obviously led me to where I am uh, today, where this season was my first covering the Canucks full time. Yeah, that's really interesting because like you, you moved up very fairly like quickly then in the kind of blogosphere over the last, over that year, right? So you basically moved from like smaller blogs all the way to the athletic getting paid full time in what a year? Yeah. Um, so I, I'd say the overall, like overall, it, it took me uh, two seasons of writing consistently um, to get to this point, which I think is, is really fortunate. I think um, a lot of just timing with the athletic looking to expand. Um, and then I was also obviously really lucky to have people 
in the Vancouver media space like like I still get messages all the time from 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 people saying that they're really thankful that uh, Jason Botchford would sort of promote promote my work everywhere because um, if it wasn't for him they wouldn't have stumbled upon uh, my articles so mm-hmm. uh, I was really fortunate with a combination of people helping me out and kind of breaking in at an opportune time uh, to have the chance to kind of move up the ladder pretty quickly because otherwise yeah like I've I've heard from a lot of people that it can be very uh, a very difficult industry to go from sort of blogging to actually turning it in, turning it into a profession so that's definitely one area where um, I don't know how much control I uh, control I, uh, I at the end of the day had over that but yeah. um, um, I think it was just a combination of, of working hard and, 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 and good timing. Yeah. And, and I have a question. Do you think regarding your style of writing, do you think coming at it from a very statistical uh, analytical perspective really offered you that, that chance and that opportunity because a lot of the main networks don't really take that angle yet. And the athletic was really on the up and up and really one of the main primary focuses of starting that whole uh, subgenre, I guess, that's now becoming the main genre. Do you think that allowed you to really break into it a lot easier and faster? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think that's what allowed me to, I think, sort of separate myself from a lot of the other content creators because um, in any big market, what you'll notice is there are so many writers, so many podcasts, so many people trying to create content. And you kind of have to figure out a way to distinguish yourself if you really want to continue to move up in the industry. Um, and so for me, I was, I was more than anything fortunate that um, analytics and sort of video analysis was uh, a passion of mine and something that um, I found quite, um, quite uh, enjoyable to do because uh, the thing about, uh, especially with a lot of my earlier work was it took a ton of hours to sort of make those articles, um, a ton of research, uh, a lot of diving through tape. Um, and the, I remember certain articles taking me um, days, um, cer- certain um, bigger projects even took me, you know, a week or two. So it was something that I had to put a lot of time and, and effort into. And because uh, I had a passion for it, I didn't burn, burn out trying to do it and I was able to put those hours of work in and because of that people could see the quality I think shine through um, in the work and because it's an angle that a lot of as you mentioned the mainstream media maybe doesn't cover um, that's how I was able to sort of carve uh, a niche for myself and build up sort of an audience and then as I continue moving up that's when I was able to expand and um, you know obviously when you go into locker rooms and and you've got the opportunity to cover the team on a more consistent basis then you can do a lot of the mainstream content as well but definitely it was it was the analytics it was it was the video and the fact that um, there was maybe that that void um, for that type of analysis in the market at the time yeah because when so just um, I hate to bring it back to me on our page but like I can relate a lot to what you just said because so the reason, so we started our page a little over a year ago now, uh, probably like a year and a month now, basically we've had this page and we've grown it to whatever, 10,000, 10,500 followers or whatever it is right now. But I noticed the exact same thing, but I didn't, I noticed it first off in the way that mainstream, the mainstream media, I guess we'll call it, covered the way uh, sports, covered uh, sports and specifically hockey, obviously. But I also noticed on Instagram, there was a lot of, there was a lot of hockey content on Instagram, no doubt about it, even a year, even a year ago, even two years ago, tons of hockey content. 
but a lot of it wasn't very evidence-based, which is like very similar to what you guys do, what you do, what uh, Dom Lushism does, what uh, Ian, uh, Ian Tullock does for The Athletic, all of you guys. You guys are very analytics-based, very uh, evidence-based. And so I noticed the same thing on Instagram where like everything on Instagram was very opinionated, was very like breaking news, like this, like very news-oriented, very similar mm -hmm. to the way that current media is. And there wasn't that much analysis. And so that's kind of how we expanded as well. It's because like there were just wasn't very much analysis on Instagram. And now that we started and we started growing very quickly, tons of pages that have like gone in contact with us. I don't know if you follow like uh, Instagram pages at all, but like NHL discussions, probably one of the biggest mm -hmm. ones out there, like 300,000 followers almost or something like that. And they've reached out to us asking us for help on like how to understand all these different analytics, whether it's, you know, war, gar, all these like little micro stats and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I find that really interesting. So for, um, so if you have advice, so like a lot of people, when they, I posted that question thing, they wanted advice on what to do. So I was hoping you mm -hmm. could kind of give us a little bit of advice on what writers should do personally for themselves. So like how, how they should write their articles or how they should develop connections and all that kind of stuff to kind of work their way into becoming part of like, what do I'd call the mainstream, whether it's working for the athletic, working for ESPN or Sportsnet, whoever it may be, like, how do you, do you have any advice for those types of uh, types of people that kind of want to get into that area? Yeah, I, and I think I mentioned it earlier, but you definitely want to, when you're writing, pick something that you're passionate about, and yeah. and because when you when you want to distinguish yourself and you're trying to come up in the industry, because there are so many content creators out there, you really have to separate yourself with quality, and I think that's uh, that's the the biggest thing. Um, that I tried to implement when I wrote my wrote my articles was a quality over quantity. I'd rather write 10 articles um, that are grade A outstanding material that I can go and, and show um, other publications as evidence of, of what I'm capable of than writing 50 articles that are of decent quality. So I think that stands out as number one. Um, and then the passion is important because that's what's going to drive the quality because to create, um, to create sort of the, the, the really, um, the, the types of articles that go, go into the nitty gritty and, and provide something different, it really does have to have some type of research. It, 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 needs, it needs something um, that can, that is reflective of kind of like the time you put in, because otherwise what happens is Take, for example, if I didn't have, an, uh, have a passion for analytics or, or video um, and yet I tried to go attack it from that angle, I would burn out pretty quickly um, and I wouldn't be able to put the effort necessary for it to kind of stand out uh, amongst the other content that people are creating. Um, and so that, that doesn't necessarily mean um, what I'm saying is don't sort of try and pigeonhole, pigeonhole yourself into a specific content type because you think it's popular or it's going to um, draw a lot of attention. I think once you once you have that um, have that drive, where you know maybe maybe it's I've seen for example Daniel Wagner in Vancouver. Uh, he started a blog uh, a long long time ago, um, and he he added humor to his post game sort of articles, and and I think he called it I watch this game, and it would have it would, it would be a very unique kind of twist off of uh, off of post game articles and. Uh, he grew his following and, and he, uh, for the last five, six, almost, I think almost 10 years now, has been a full-time at the Vancouver Courier. 
Um, and, it, and it shows you, you don't necessarily have to be analytics or video to stand out. You just have to find your voice and what you do really well. And, and that's what's going to give you the uh, motivation and discipline to keep sticking and, and keep grinding through thick and thin because it is, um, again, I, I mentioned it before, I'm really fortunate that I found my break pretty early, but for a lot of people it takes, um, like I, I speak to colleagues all the time, it took them a long, a long while to really establish themselves. So you need to um, A, prioritize quality over quantity and then figure out what you really enjoy, what type of content do you really enjoy doing? Is it kind of dissecting rosters? Is it figuring out contract comparables for, for when, when uh, players enter the unrestricted market? Um, is it analytics video? Is it sort of like a humorous spin on post-game articles? Like whatever it is, uh, find that, get as many reps as you can. And I think that's the biggest piece of advice because it is a long journey for, for most people. And um, you, need, you need to have, have the passion for it to, to really make it out on top. Yeah. And I liked what you said about doing uh, quality over quantity because I think so much now in the social media age is so much quantity over quality. But when it comes yeah. to stuff like this, it's so much more about, uh, so much more about quality. So I, I liked how you, you pointed that out and made that difference. And that's how, and, and that's how people remember you. Um, I, I, I read a lot of, of content, obviously in, in the hockey sphere and, and, and the names that I remember, the authors that I keep going back to are the ones that stand out to me where when I finish reading that piece, I'm like, wow, like that, that was an outstanding um, story. I remember going back um, when I was trying to kind of perfect and, and work on my writing style. Uh, I came across Ryan Stimson's work, who used to write for, for The Athletic in, in Buffalo. Um, and I, for someone in Vancouver, I, I could care less about the Sabres. But because his content was so so feature rich, because it was so well done, because the quality was was sky high, I found myself going back to his work and wanting to read it again and again, even though I didn't have a, a particular interest in in um, in in the team or, or or the players he was covering. And and I think that's the most important part is when you do create that quality content, people remember you. Um, and they and they follow you and, and they and it gives them incentive gives them incentive uh, to read your work in the future because they know they're going to get something valuable out of it. Yeah, I, I completely agree because the, the whole reason we reached out to you was because I've read your work before and you're very you're like all your work has been very memorable to me because it's very like in depth and it's it's very helpful in understanding the Canucks. And obviously we cover like every team. So like reading your work and stuff is so like, it's so important for like what we do on our page. And I like, like you said, like Ryan Stinson, his work is amazing too. Like all, all these like great writers, like when you, when you read their work, you remember them and you know them and you have, you almost feel that you have a personal connection to them almost in a way. Right. Exactly. You completely understand their writing style. You just, you know what you're getting with them. And I think there's like some safety in that, I guess. And there's, some unique value that you provide to them when you're doing that. Yeah. And the other thing is when you do initially start, um, and, and I know this when I go back and read some of my earliest work is you're, when you first start, you're not going to create the, the best articles. Um, it's very much a, like you want to get your, you want to get your reps in um, when, when writing these types of pieces as well. Um, but again, when I talk about getting your repetitions and I mean, 
when it comes to doing these bigger in-depth type pieces because that's um, the most important type of content to really um, separate yourself from from other writers that are out there and um, I think when you when you do when you do start blogging I mean don't hesitate either to reach out to um, other other people who are already established in the media industry because that's a lot of what I did in my uh, first year of blogging I uh, would reach out to different writers and ask for feedback on my work and um, and, and, and almost everyone that I've encountered has been outstanding about that, where they'll, they'll read my work and, and give me pointers and, and tips. Um, and, and so that's something too, where when you do start writing, don't, don't hesitate to reach out to different people, um, because they are in, in most cases willing to help you out. Yeah. What, a, another aspect that I really liked about what you just said, what you said was, uh, your aspect of how you got really lucky. So like obviously you need skill to get to where you're at. Like there's no doubting like your articles are amazing and you have the talent for it. But there's also this aspect of luck that people kind of miss out on, like your fortune in the sense. Like you talked about how exactly. uh, Boschford, like he helped you out along the way. And I think a lot of like I think a lot of people when they become successful, or when they, when they, if they get they confuse success with luck a lot of the time in the sense that yes you were talented but you also like you got your opportunities because maybe you were just there at the right time in the right place and stuff like that and i think that's also really important for people to understand because as you said like people they can be blogging for five six years and never really get their their chance and you, you just have to kind of stick through it and have to have like real pa real passion for it as you just said, because you, not everyone can get lucky all the time. Not everyone can get that opportunity. So I think that's really like important. And I think it's really amazing that you kind of, you're able to like, just say it straight up that you think that, you know, you got all these great opportunities and it's not only your talent, it's also uh, outside aspects that you can't really control. So I thought that absolutely. was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I look at someone, um, one of my sort of friends in the media industry, JD Burke, um, right now he, uh, is the editor in chief of Elite Prospects, kind of kind of covering draft eligible prospects, and um, even for other, uh, even you know when 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 an NHL team signs an NCAA prospect, he'll cover that um, sort of stuff. So he's finally made it full time. I think this year has been his his first season covering covering hockey full time as well. But it took him many many years of blogging. He started way before me. I think I'm trying to think back, maybe. 2013 2014 yeah i've been reading his work for years <laughs> exactly yeah. and so it took him a really long time for him to establish uh, a foothold and a place um in the vancouver market and even even when he sort of did um even when he kind of did um make make sort of create an audience for himself it, it he didn't go from part-time to full-time right away it's like yeah. he got that audience and then he had to wait for and continue chipping away until that break until that opportunity came by and so um, I think over the last couple of couple of years it's been pretty interesting to see there have been at least in the, in the among a lot of the Vancouver writers a lot of different breaks uh, for people um, I think it's very a lot of times it can be cyclical where mm -hmm. you might have people retiring or different um, or different just opportunities open up and I think Again, it is really important to keep in mind that for every story like mine, there's the story of someone like JD who had to persist for so many years. Um, and it's not that I'm necessarily more talented or anything than, than JD. He's a phenomenal writer mm -hmm. uh, himself. So it just kind of goes to show that it, it's a combination of hard work and, and, and you do have to find your, your break at, at the right place 
uh, and, and the right time. But um, I think if you, if you go at it from, from a consistent perspective for long enough, the opportunity will eventually open up. It's just, um, just you, you, can't, uh, you can't become discouraged by it. You got to stick through it. Um, and it's, I mean, nothing in life com- comes easy. And um, if this was easy, then everyone would become a, a, a yeah. hockey writer. I mean, so many people have that aspiration, um, but the ones that really come out on top and the ones that I admire most are guys like JD who stuck through for so many years and then got their break. Yeah. Yeah. You're completely right. Um, so this is a question kind of for me actually, because we just started our website and I've been writing, I've been, as I mentioned, I've been trying to write an article like once or twice a week in general. So what do you, how do you come up with your article ideas? Like what's your writing process? Like, I kind of want to know a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, for, for me anyway, I try and take a look at um, what are people talking about in the market? What are, what are people debating? What are people arguing about? Um, and then from that perspective, trying to figure out, okay, what's my opinion on this? Or mm-hmm. how can I sort of dive into this topic? And, uh, and to give you an example, um, I imagine coming up, there's going to be, I mean, right now the NHL is obviously in a state of limbo where the season is on hold and you can't really get into a lot of the off-season topics until there's some finality to this one. But once yeah. the season is over, a huge discussion point in Vancouver is going to be uh, will the Canucks be able to re-sign Tyler Toffoli? Uh, and I think from my perspective, there's obviously I've seen a lot of back and forth on that. And um, when I see something like that, um, in my head, I'm already thinking, okay, I'm going to, when the time is right, I'm going to get into contract comparables. I'm going to do some research into players who hold a similar profile to Toffoli. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and reach out to as many people in the industry that I uh, know and, and get their insight and opinion on this and kind of write an article on what will it take for the Canucks to re-sign Toffoli. And, and, and that's the biggest thing is, trying to figure out what are people talking about because that's what people are, are, are most going to engage with. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if you um, like to give a Vancouver example, sure. It might be nice to write an article on the seventh defenseman, but if no one's talking about it, it's, all, it's also going to gain a lot less traction. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to hit on the hot button topics that people are, are, are arguing about. And that's why so much of, of coverage in media field, notice across all sports, it covers the the main players. I mean, how many articles do you see in Vancouver, for example, on Pedersen, Hughes, yeah. uh, uh, all really the media attention? Here, right? they, there are people, there are players that get all of the media attention, mm-hmm. um, and that's not mm-hmm. to say that you should necessarily limit yourself to just those players or just those topics. But those are going to be the ones that are most likely to gain the most attention from other people. Um, and, and I think even for myself, even if there's a content creator who I maybe haven't read or or seen before, but if they're, if they're, if they have an article breaking down something that I'm actually curious to see the answer about that I've always been wondering or thinking about, then just instinctively, it's like, people will want to read that. And um, I think that's kind of my process as I try and figure out what would, what, what would I, I try and put myself in, in the picture of, uh, in the shoes of a fan and think if I was a Canucks fan right now, or if I was a Sabres fan or, or a Leafs fan, what would I want to read about? What, what, what am I looking for the answer to? 
mm-hmm. um, and kind of just moving from 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 forward from that perspective. Yeah, that's that's really interesting example that you use with the contract comparables because we've actually been doing our own series on that on Instagram right now. So I've been doing all the top restricted free agents and then all the top unrestricted free agents. So I haven't gotten to the full yet. I've done you know like Taylor Hall, Mike Hoffman, right. and a bunch of the top RFAs, Dubois, and um, all like a bunch of those guys. So like those articles are always super interesting to me when those kinds of things come out. And I agree with you, like. Our process is very similar. We see what's going on. So I obviously like I follow you. I follow you on Twitter. I follow all these different uh, athletic writers, all the a ton of bloggers and stuff like that. So you see what's going on in all these different markets, and then you can kind of design your social media posts around that and post kind of what's very popular and what's getting talked about right now. So I think we have very similar processes there with social, with Instagram and with uh, with your writing story, with your uh, writing style there, I guess. So that's actually really interesting to me and actually really helpful to me. So I really appreciate that. Um, so I wanted to get onto the Canucks now. I think like we've talked enough about ourselves, but um, yeah. So I kind of <laughs> want to talk to you about the uh, the Canucks trade deadline. So I had a lot of thoughts about it, but I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts first. So uh, you guys acquired Toffoli. You kind of went all in on this, not all in, but you you know you made a big splash this year at the trade deadline, and you. Uh, Brought entire t- Tyler uh, Tafoli, like you said. So I kind of wanted to gain your uh, thoughts on the, about that move. Personally, for me, I didn't like it at all. I wasn't a fan. So I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I think um, it, it's a really it kind of split um, the fan base as many decisions do in the Vancouver market, and um, I think it depends on. I think the success of that trade depends on what you consider a win for, for the franchise. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think for a lot of people who have followed this Vancouver team for the last few years, and they've gone through a lot of losing, they want to feel the competitive team. They want to see meaningful hockey. They want to make the playoffs. And I think making the playoffs um, and having the opportunity to win uh, one round, maybe two in a wide open Western conference that really appeals. And I think that prospect was, was, I think people saw that and, and said, if we can make the playoffs, even if we get say swept in the first round or, or, or in a better case scenario, let's say we, we even win the win a first round and get knocked out in the second well, then that's a win because we're seeing competitive hockey. And mm-hmm. if you're looking at it from that perspective, then yes, the, the Toffoli trade is a worthwhile gamble because, um, you know, with Brock Besser at the time going out with injury, the Canucks were really weak um, on the right wing. And, and obviously you saw the, the fit of Toffoli, six goals in 10 games, uh, 10 points, Pedersen and uh, uh, JT Miller. But I think from my perspective, and I think this is something that others share as well, is for me anyway, I think the ultimate goal is, is from a team-building aspect to, to win a Stanley Cup. And I think mm. you have to time your window around that. Uh, there are only so many years where you can push your chips into the table and deal one of your better prospects in Talon Madden and give up a second-round pick. That's a pretty uh, hefty price to pay for, for a UFA rental. Uh, I, I just think that teams that realistically cannot or, or realistically have a long shot of winning a Stanley Cup, that they shouldn't be paying paying premium prices for uh, rentals. And I think from that perspective anyway, 
I mean, again, a, a, a better, a, a best case scenario probably would have seen Vancouver win one round, maybe two, um, which is great. I mean, you love, love to see that sort of progression, but at the same time, to have the stockpile of picks and assets to go all in when they really need to. And I think that's kind of the, the lens through which I view it. I kind of wanted to know what were your thoughts on Tyler Madden because obviously you were covering the Canucks for a while, so you probably know a little bit more about him than I did. I really liked him as a prospect. I thought he had you know really solid top six potential, so I was I didn't really like that trade at all for Vancouver because just like you said, like I I believe in building a team for to build a cup to build a cup winning team, not to build a team that makes the first round or maybe even the second round of the playoffs. And I know like as a Leafs fan who hasn't watched his team go to the second round of the playoffs in years um like I get the the want getting I get wanting to like make it to the playoffs and like win around and stuff like that but like from a team team building aspect it doesn't really make any sense so I kind of just want to get your thoughts on Charlie Madden I, I think for myself anyway I, I watched um a little bit of Madden um this year in in the NCAA for Northeastern and um I think there are a couple of angles to to look at his um um at his resume I think from a scoring statistical sense uh, his production is um is almost identical to Adam Gaudet's where mm-hmm. um where both guys kind of took off in their freshman year and followed it up um, with even better performances in, in their sophomore campaign uh, both doing it for Nor- Northeastern uh, University um, and I think even stylistically there are some similarities that both guys have and, and obviously Gaudet uh, breaking out in the uh, NHL this year for Vancouver scoring at a 46 point uh point pace um i think i definitely see i am not necessarily sure if there's top six upside with men's game but definitely top nine um i think mm-hmm. he could uh very conceivably be a middle six scorer and um and, and they're just he's so um he's so crafty with his skating he's got exceptional hands uh yeah. he has a good vision uh, for the game i think there are some there are going to be some growing pains for him as far as I think for a smaller guy, he doesn't, he isn't necessarily the quickest player with his feet. Um, and I do think that uh, there are some, he's a little bit rough on the ed- around the edges as far as uh, puck management and sort of figuring out that balance of, of risk to reward when trying to create offense. Uh, but for a smaller guy, he's incredibly competitive. Um, he's going to have to put some weight on, but you can see he has, uh, he has all the elements that you want to see out of an undersized guy that mm-hmm. that can be successful um, at the NHL level. I think um, uh, I've also been impressed with his two-way ability. I think especially um, when he played for the U.S. at uh, last year's World Junior Championships, uh, he really stood out in, in that sense. So, um, yeah, I think he can be a, a quality middle six forward at the NHL level, whether you want to stick him at center down the middle where he can make a lot more plays or – uh, perhaps even on the wing, but uh, I definitely see a bright future ahead uh, for Madden. It's going to take him a little bit of a while to to get to the NHL kind of uh, and, and make an impact similar to Gaudet. But um, I think I think I really like the comparison between Gaudet and, and Madden. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they're necessarily identical stylistically. There's obviously a size difference, um, and um, and and there's some, some elements of their game that are different. But as far as the type of impact that Madden can have could have at the NHL level. Uh, I don't think it's dissimilar from what, uh, from what Goddard showed uh, in Vancouver this year. 
So from a playoffs aspect, did uh, can you remind me, because I'm not sure about the timing on this, was Markstrom injured before or after the trade that they made for Toffoli? Oh, uh, um, I believe... I believe the Markstrom news came shortly after, I want to say. I think it was right around the deadline. I think it was like uh, maybe even the same day. It was the same day mm-hmm. as the trade deadline. Because so the Toffoli trade was made a few days before that, yeah. Because it like blew my because I because from my perspective, I thought, and I don't know if this is actually true, I thought the Canucks knew that Markstrom was injured and still went and acquired Toffoli, which – like, I don't know, uh, that's why I wanted to ask you, because if that were true, that kind of blows my mind that that was even a consider it was even a consideration to try to go and make a splash in the playoffs with Markstrom out. Because, like, Mar- Markstrom was the core of that team last year, right? Like, he put up a ve- – or this year, he put up a Vezina-worthy campaign. Like, you know, all the goalie metrics that we use, goal saved above expected, or even, like, uh, clear sight in analytics that goes a little bit more in depth than uh, the public metrics that we have. They look at the pass before the shot and everything like that. And they had them him as like the top ranked goalie. So I wasn't sure if Markstrom was injured before or after that trade, because it would have, that kind of completely changes my view on it. So I guess, I guess you don't know though, right? Uh, I think, um, I, I think with Markstrom, whether or not they knew um, his status before the Toffoli trade, uh, I'm not sure on that. But uh, what I can say is they did think that he would be ready in time for um, for the playoffs. And I think in Benning's for, first media availability, I think when they signed uh, one of their prospects, I want to say Will Lockwood, um, I think it was maybe at that availability, I think around end of March, Mm-hmm. So uh, a couple weeks ago, um, where Benning said that if the season was still going on, that Markstrom would have been back and, and healthy. And obviously two weeks ago, the regular season, we'd still be playing the last handful of games. So mm-hmm. um, I think from if that was the case where they knew Markstrom was injured when they traded for Toffoli, which I don't think is the case. Okay. But even if it were, I think they were confident that he would be able to come back uh, before the end of the regular season and at the very least before the playoffs started. All right, that's really interesting because then that kind of changes my opinion on the trade a little bit more because I think when you have a goalie having a Vezina-worthy season, maybe it is like sometimes, okay, you know, just give the team a chance and because, you know, a goaltender can take you the entire way in the playoffs, right, especially on a hot streak. Um, so if since we're talking about Markstrom, might as well talk about it. He's a free agent this year. So what do you think Vancouver should do with him, right? Because I think this is the most interesting aspect of the Canucks offseason this year is what they're going to do with Markstrom because he's, what, 31, I think I want to say, 30, 31. So he's an older goalie. He just came off, like, an insane season. Uh, he's going to – I'm assuming he's going to want a long-term deal with big money. Um, and then you guys have two really good prospects, uh, goalie prospects. You have ta- uh, Demko, who's, uh, who's been playing as his, uh, his backup. And then you have uh, – Di Pietro, who's still in junior, or is he in the A? He's in the AHL now, right? AHL, yeah. AHL, yeah. So he's in the AHL right now. He's not ready to step up, and it doesn't look like Demko is ready to step up as a full-time starter as well. So what do you think the Canucks should do with Markstrom? Because the expansion draft's coming up as well, like uh, in a year from year from now. Yeah. So like they're gonna have. Mm-hmm. So whatever happens with him is gonna affect Demko, and I assume Demko is their future in net. So I kind of wanted to get your thoughts about that because I think that's the most interesting story the Canucks have going into the offseason. Yeah, it's going to be a huge storyline going into the offseason, and it was for even much of 
of January, and it's been it's been something that um, has been talked about a lot. And I think just by virtue of Markstrom being the team's MVP, and and without him, I don't think they're um, anywhere close to the playoff bar. I just think he's too important in the here and now for the team to look at a future without him. I think mm-hmm. um, especially they have um, – I don't know what's going to happen with the lottery uh, with the lottery pick they initially gave Tampa Bay um, in the JT Miller trade. But if they keep the pick this year, um, then for next year they've got a, an unprotected first-round pick that they're giving up. And that's – um, if you remove someone like Markstrom from the equation there, then then you're entering really dangerous territory where yeah. um, you could be giving up uh, you could be giving up a lottery pick um, to obviously the New Jersey Devils now own that uh, selection through the Blake Coleman trade. But um, I just think it's too important for the team right now for them to kind of give up on him. And as you mentioned, I don't I don't think that Thatcher Demko is ready to take the reins as the number one goalie um, and having said that I think it it's going to have to be a deal a contract that that strikes a balance um, as far as term because uh, we've seen with a lot of goalies as they enter their early to mid 30s kind of fall off the map and some of them yeah. had injury uh, history before but guys like Devin Dubinick Jonathan Quick um, I mean some of the names aren't aren't kind of clicking off the top of my head Brodsky right now but Brovsky, I mean, yeah. you're seeing a lot of goalies in their early 30s that um, that sort of they've taken a significant step back in their career, and there aren't a lot of examples of guys like Mark Andre Fleury and Henrik Lundqvist that can stay consistent. Um, as you mentioned, going to be the, the biggest factor in a negotiation. I think Vancouver's positioned um, in a unique spot, however, where the goalie market, as I see it, heading into this summer is is buyer friendly and yeah. I see the some of the guys that are available on on the market Holtby um, you have uh, Crawford Leonard um, you have Howard uh, Hudobin Grice um, just a lot and of course Markstrom so you have a lot you have this influx of goalie ta- goalie talent hitting the open market on top of that you have um, a couple of teams in the New York Rangers who are carrying three goalies. They're going to have to trade one of yep. um, their guys probably this summer. You've got Columbus who might, who might well, they're eventually going to have to flip one of Corpus Allo or Mers Leakins. So there, there's really a, a good supply of potential number one goalies or at least one B guys. And there aren't, in my estimation, a lot of buyers. I think a lot of the teams that are looking in, in need of um, a bona fide number one goalie they're you know perhaps rebuilding like an Ottawa Senators or uh, a team like Detroit uh, or LA uh, or they or they're like San Jose where they just don't have the cap space. So uh, I think the Canucks could be in a position where they have more leverage because of just the market dynamics um, heading into the offseason. And especially with goalies, the supply demand matters more than it would for a skater. I mean, yeah. if you have a player like Tyler Toffoli hit the open market, I mean, 15 to 20 teams are looking for a top six winger. Mm-hmm. When a goalie hits the market, there's a very select market of teams that have a, the cap space and the need for a legitimate starter. So in this case, I think Vancouver is in a position maybe where they can squeeze Markstrom into a more favorable team friendly deal where let's say, 
they are able to extend him at um, at a number in the in the six six and a half range for maybe three years, provided that they give him say a no trade clause or or no move one. Um, so I think Vancouver is in a spot where I think they need Markstrom back. Um, and B, I think the market kind of works in in their favor potentially in being able to maybe reduce uh, uh, the term on a potential contract so how many years do you think you would go there because three years doesn't sound like a whole lot when you're thinking about some of the recent goalie contracts that have like been given out so like three years i think that would be ideal for the team like that's a very team-friendly deal there at whatever six million dollars or 6.5 whatever whatever the number is so do you do you honestly think that like Markstrom will take a three-year deal or do you think it's more realistic in the five five-year range for example I think five would definitely be um, I, I think the one thing to keep in mind with Markstrom is uh, he doesn't have a very expansive resume for as good as he's been in his last two years so um, I think he's going to be in tough to command five years I think I think that's going to be his ask and mm-hmm. I can see the team's ask being um, two or three years. So I think they could quite conceivably, depending on how, again, how the market kind of um, shapes up leading into the summer, we'll see who has, the, who has more of the leverage. I think four would be, four years would kind of be the um, kind of split in the middle, a compromise for both sides. And mm-hmm. I think that could be kind of where, where, where the team ultimately, ultimately ends up on him. Um, but right now there are just so many factors, especially with the cap being uncertain for next year, that we won't we don't know um, what the situation is going to be like for so many of these free agents, especially for a team like Vancouver, who is right up against it for the salary for the salary cap. So maybe the Canucks are indeed in a position where they can't afford to go high on the AAV. And maybe they have to stretch out that term. And maybe they do end up giving five years to Markstrom. So I think right now it's just kind of unknown. There are so many factors out there that we don't know the answer to that are going, going to impact the Markstrom negotiations. That it's, it's really one of the toughest contracts out there, I think, right now to try and peg down. Uh, but I think, yeah, somewhere between the three to five range. Um, and, and we'll see who ends up having more leverage depending on how uh, depending on how the salary cap ends up being, depending on what happens with some of the other goalies out in the market. Um, there's, yeah, there's just a lot of uncertainty out there right now. Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good point on the salary cap as well. Cause it, I think every contract in the NHL right now depends on what the salary cap is going to be, right? Because the NHL is what going to lose 30% of their revenue this year if they just canceled the season outright. So, and that's a substantial amount of the revenue, which means player escrow is at like a 35% or whatever it'll be. And then, Every and then that and then if the cap goes down by whatever percentage it would go down by, like every team gets squeezed at that point. Like and like this year, I'm pretty sure like this was a crazy year when it came to cap space. Like every team in the NHL was just loaded up with contracts. Like there's so many teams that were close yeah. to ceiling. Like I I don't think I've ever seen a year like that where there was this many teams like that close to the ceiling. Because even the smaller market teams Arizona Florida they were all capped out too and that's something you don't really see very often so I agree with you there like Mark Markstrom's gonna have a hard time getting a big contract right now and especially with the last couple big goalie contracts that have been given out that just haven't worked out well at all (laughs) especially the Brobski one and stuff like that like it's gonna be 
gonna be really rough for him to try to get a big deal. But I'm kind of interested in what happens with Demko then, right? Because Demko's clear, like for me anyways, I think Demko has the potential to be an NHL starter. I think most people in Vancouver would tend to agree with that. I don't think he's ready right now, but I think, you know, one, two years down the line, I don't see why he couldn't be a potential NHL starter. But with the expansion draft coming up, and as you said, if Markstrom gets a no-move clause, he's going to be, they're going to have to expose Demko, right? So do you think that management's going to be okay with that? I think from their perspective, I remember talking to Benning on that uh, topic in, in January, and they're taking a, a wait-and-see approach mm-hmm. to that. Um, I, I think kind of their perspective on it is it's so far down the line, so many things could, could change in the picture. Um, uh, and even with Markstrom, um, obviously that contract hasn't happened yet. We don't know if, if um, the team's going to be in a position where, where maybe, let's say, they – they can squeeze Markstrom into just just um, just having a no trade clause, and uh, they won't have to necessarily protect him. And so, I think from management's perspective, they're kind of looking at um, the dynamic there, and they're saying we have a lot of time; we're going to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if they're going to make a decision between the two of them, they're definitely going to have to make some type of move. I think before uh, next year's trade deadline. Because I think once you advance beyond that point and you try and like, let's say the team's still is still holding on to both guys heading into the, heading into the draft, it's going to be tough because making trades at the last second and getting market value for pieces that everyone knows that you're otherwise going to have to expose mm-hmm. um, during during the expansion draft, you're not going to get a lot of value out of uh, those types of players. Um, I think the other thing is. From from Vancouver's perspective, I don't think they know what they have in Demko yet. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know um, if they truly believe that he can be a number one goalie. I think he's got such a limited NHL resume right now, Demko does, where he's shown really well in college and, and at the AHL levels. He's got the pedigree to be a starter, but we haven't seen him um, sort of – he's still finding his way in the NHL, and I think he had a 905 save percentage this year. So – um, I think there's some uncertainty on that level too, is what do you have in Demko? Is he a future number one or is he more of, is he, is he more going to be a backup at the NHL level? And I mm-hmm. think the team wants to have the opportunity to see another year of him play of, uh, of Ian Clark getting more reps out of him and seeing what exactly um, they assess Demko to be and, and, and having a more clear projection on him before they kind of, make a longer term decision on, on, on the two of them. So um, it's a really difficult spot. Um, and, and again, it's, it's one of those situations where the marks from negotiation, yeah, if they give him a no move clause, then it's tough because you have to protect Markstrom and you don't even know what you have in Demko yet. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a really tricky situation to navigate. I think the other thing to keep in mind too is uh, Vancouver is not going to be the only team in this spot where they're going to have to expose a, a pretty decent goalie. I oh, think yeah. there are a lot of NHL clubs out there. So maybe like if Demko has another season like this one where he's, let's say, a 905, 906, 907 as a backup, is, Se- is he, is he going to be the best goalie available for Seattle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you also have to factor in who else is Vancouver going to be exposing because at the last expansion draft, they didn't have anyone of value, but this time around, if they have someone decent, um, a skater on the roster, then maybe 
to a team like Seattle is even interested in, mm-hmm. in Demko. So it's just, there's, there's so many unknowns right now um, with the Seattle expansion draft, so many unknowns with, with, uh, with the projection for Demko that it's, uh, it's one of those things where I think management's going to take their time. I'd, I wouldn't expect them to make uh, a clear cut decision um, moving on from one of their goalies um, until, until, some point next season unless unless of course they're unable to re-sign Markstrom Mm -hmm. yeah that's a really good point you made because so like what we always say and what you know what I post on our page all the time is that goalies are just booty like you don't know what's going to happen with the goalie season to season like if you think you can predict a goalie you're crazy like there's there's no there's no prediction capability when it comes to goalies in my opinion like you yes you can judge their talent to a certain extent you can say okay this guy looks like he's going to become a starting goalie but it's kind of just a crapshoot it's like throwing darts onto a dartboard like you know like mark even markstrom's a very good example like he was such a highly touted prospect for so long and then everyone thought he'd become a starter and it took him until he became 29 i want to say 28 yeah. or 29 before he actually showed that he could be a starting nhl goalie so it's kind of hard to it's kind of you know going with the going with the guy that you know and going with markstrom because you know that you know at least for the next two seasons he's going to be a capable nhl goalie at least you, you hope yeah. he will be. Uh, but as as we've seen with other goalies, like Bobrovsky, you can go from being the best goalie in the league to the worst goalie in the league in a year or two flat. Like a, anything can happen, I guess. But um, what do you think about uh, Di Pietro as well? Because I kind of want uh, do you do you follow prospects very closely? I don't think I see you write about them a lot, but just kind of want to get your thoughts. I follow um I follow I follow uh, Pod Colson and uh, Hoglander pretty closely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, follow... I want to ask about them next too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I haven't watched, to be quite honest. I'm I, I'm not very good at goalie prospects. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think he, from from by, by all accounts, he seems to have a pretty good season. Um, down in Utica, he got a bit of a cup of coffee um, at the NHL level in, in a relief uh, appearance against Vegas this year. Uh, the the thing with Di Pietro is he's a very athletic um, goalie who. He's undersized, and I think that's that's the biggest uh, going to be the biggest obstacle for him. Mm-hmm. Is excuse me, he's uh, six. He's six feet, so um, by obviously goaltending standards, one of uh, a pretty small guy. I think if you look at Markstrom, he's six six. I think Demko's mm-hmm. six four, um, and you see sort of that pattern around the league where um, it, uh, it they really are moving and trending towards these really big goalies that can take up a lot more of the net. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it really does take an exception for someone like Di Pietro to excel at the NHL level. So um, I'm going to be really interested to track his development. Um, there are some people who think he can he, he has an outside chance to be uh, a number one someday down down the road. And I think he's a longer term project though, just because of 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 the size factor and how he's going to learn to adapt to the pro game and um, and really figure out how to overcome the, the the fact that he doesn't cover up a whole lot of a lot of the net. So I think he's he's a wild card in this situation, but I don't think he necessarily factors a ton um into this decision because he is still quite a ways away. Yeah. I completely agree. So what about I'm kinda of wanting to hear a little bit about the whole Pug Colson and Hoglander because I've seen a lot of Pug Colson this year just because uh I, I've just been like really fascinated by his development this year. Um, I think he's going to be. I think he can be a, definitely be a top six forward. I I've kind of said like I think of, he, of him as like a fifty to sixty point winger. So I kind of want to just get your thoughts about what where uh, where he's heading and how 
his season one. Yeah, he had a really up and down season. It was a tale of two halves for him where um, in the first half of the year, he went pointless, I think, through his first 19 KHL games. He was kind of dressing as a 13th forward, um, averaging, like he'd have some games where he skated just a few shifts. And um, I think he averaged maybe six minutes a night. So he wasn't really getting an opportunity there, bouncing up and down between the KHL on the VHL, which is the second-tier Russian league. Um, and you got to remember, uh, he's an 18-year-old in, in the second-best league in the world. And, and, for, and, and SKA, which is the KHL team, the KHL organization that he belongs to, um, they're quite veteran-heavy. They uh, are one of the league's richer clubs. And so he really wasn't gifted anything from the start. And I think that mm-hmm. kind of uh, plays into why he didn't get much, uh, get much going in the first half of the year. Um, but in coming back from world juniors, he sort of was able to thrive on uh, a kid line with, um, I want to say Morozov and, and, and some other U20 player that I can't remember, but two of his teammates at, uh, at the world championships for team Russia uh, also belonged to Scott. And so he finally got that opportunity where um, the club kind of built uh, a sheltered bottom six scoring line with pod Coles and, and, and two of his junior teammates um, they really popped off. I think Pod Colson had something along the lines of 12 or 13 points in his last, I think 12 points in his last 17 KHL games or something along mm. those lines. Um, and he really found his footmark offensively. But the most impressive part about his game from my, from my eyes and, and what I've seen is his two-way ability. I think he is so refined in, in the details of his game. Never see him uh, on the wrong side of a puck. Uh, he is, he always takes the most direct route to a puck. He's got that unique blend of uh, power and speed um, where he can strip players of pucks. He's really good along the boards. Um, he is just ferocious on the back check, um, puts his body out in line. He's a very, uh, like, he, he's a type of player that teammates are just going to love because he plays the game the right way and, and coaches He's not going to have a hard time finding trust from, from coaches at the NHL level. He's, he's already, in my opinion, an NHL caliber two-way forward. Um, and from that perspective, I think he has, he has a very high ceiling just from a defensive standpoint to be a matchup winger um, and, and be, a top, be a high-end play driver. I mean, I, I, looked, I got a chance, a sneak peek at some of the underlying data. And um, I think in, in, in the sample that uh, Iceberg Sports had tracked, he was driving something ridiculous, like 73% of the scoring chances when he was on the ice in the KHL, which is, which is very gaudy for, <laughs> yeah. for an 18-year-old. So I think he has a very bright future for him. I don't think he has star potential just as far as, just as, far as his offensive ceiling. Um, I think he's going to be more of a, a complementary scorer um, I, I think he's really underrated as a playmaker, but he isn't, um, he isn't a creative, uh, he isn't the most creative player in manufacturing space for himself on the defensive set. So that's why um, I don't think he maybe has 70 to 80 point upside, but uh, definitely I think he can be a complimentary top six scorer um, who plays like a legitimate power forward and, and has really high end uh, two way abilities. I think he has a really unique package to offer uh, the Vancouver Canucks down the road. I really like the way you described him there because I think that that what you're talking about with his style fits a lot with what Vancouver's doing. Like they're all their wingers, they're very two-way like yeah. players. Like everyone in Vancouver, they're very like 
I don't think you can call anyone really on their roster defensive liabilities the way you can on like some other teams' rosters, for example. I think like everyone, I kind of, it's probably that I give credit to the system more than the players themselves, in my opinion, anyways, and probably the coaching as well with what uh, Travis Ray's mm-hmm. done over there. But like, they're, everyone's very two way like oriented. Everyone's always getting back defensively. Everyone's very good along the boards. They're very active along the board. So I think that's a really interesting way that you described him because I think he fits right in with Vancouver's kind of style of play that they've Absolutely. Kind of developed. Yeah. Um, so then uh, Hoglander, right? So I think he's a, I think he's probably the prospect that Vancouver Canucks fans are most excited for just because of his performances like at the World Juniors and everything like that. I think uh, maybe I'm wrong on that because I don't follow the Vancouver market very well, but I think he's kind of their – the prospect everyone's kind of looking forward to seeing. So what do you, uh, what do you think about him? Yeah. So again, another undersized, I think he's five, nine, but he's very, um, he's bulked up quite a bit. I think he's 180 or 190 pounds. So he, he's got um, a lot of strength, low center of gravity, very strong, uh, can compete in the corners and in the net front area. But with, with him, what stands out really is just his dynamic skill set. Um, he his edge work is phenomenal and, and his hands are, are electric. He's a very flashy player. We've seen that with a couple of the lacrosse goals that he scored one in the SHL, of course, and then yeah. um, the other at the World Junior Championships where he dominated. And so I think his skill set is very loud. And I think sometimes when you see him in the offensive zone kind of um, behind the net or, or just skating on the perimeter, it's almost reminiscent and reminiscent of Quinn Hughes at times where he's got such a special special skill set of being able to break a defense open um, with, with just the way he's able to turn on a dime and, and just his vision and his playmaking. Um, I think he's a little bit different in the sense that it might take him time to acclimate to the NHL, um, NHL type um, environment just as far as learning the details defensively. Um, kind of bringing up his pace of play and, and adapting to that sense, which is a, a pretty common thing that a lot of prospects have uh, to learn. I think he also has top six upside. I think maybe more scoring potential than Hoglander, or sorry, than uh, Pod Colson. Um, but of course, because he is uh, because he is smaller, because he does uh, maybe maybe he doesn't have the two way profile that Pod Colson projects to have. Uh, I think he's more of um, he he isn't like. I'd characterize Pod Colson as a lot safer of a prospect. I think mm-hmm. even if he doesn't um, end up hitting his stride offensively, I think he's still going to be a quality third liner who can drive play and still be a valuable chip in that way. I think for Hogland, he's going to have to be a difference maker offensively to really stick at the NHL level. Um, and I do think he has that potential just with the game-breaking skill set that he, uh, that he has to offer um, and that he's shown and flashed at the uh, Swedish Elite League level. So what do you think their timelines are like? Because obviously Vancouver right now, they have, in their top six, they have Patterson, they have Besser, they have JT Miller, they have uh, Bo Horvat, then I guess Tanner Pearson and yeah. Tyler Toffoli, I guess, finishes their second line there. So if they gave Tyler Toffoli an extension, do you think, like, what do you think, where, where do you think they line, line up with in, their, in Vancouver's timeline right now? Yeah, so I think t- next year is the last of Tanner Pearson's, just as far as his contract goes. So he's going to be someone who, obviously, his deal expires. I think with Pod Coles, and um, he has one more year left in the KHL, so he's going to spend next year over in Russia, um, and then the year after, I think he's going to go straight to the NHL. 
Um, I, I think he's one of those players who can thrive in, say, like a third-line role. I don't think that's um, that's going to be a difficulty. You can slot him pretty much anywhere up and down the lineup, and, and he'll sort of carve out a role um, specific to what you want him to do. And, and that's part of what uh, what coaches love about him is just he's so versatile and can sort of fulfill a lot of different roles. So I think Pod Colson is just realistically someone who you could throw anywhere in the lineup, and, and he's – someone who would adapt pretty well. I think with Hoglander, I, I think we'll see. I'd expect Vancouver to sign him. I think it will take him one, at least part of one year to develop in the AHL uh, before he's ready to sort of crack an NHL roster on a, on a full-time basis. Um, if and when he does make it, I think he... There are a couple different roles I could see him in. Um, I think, I think perhaps one of them could be sort of uh, the Canucks have built a sheltered third scoring line with centered around Adam Gaudet, and mm-hmm. maybe Hoglander is someone who profiles in that type of role early in his career um, as someone who, yeah, maybe he does need a little bit of sheltering um, early on in his NHL career, but he's playing with uh, other offensive like-minded players. Um, and, and, and sort of thriving in that type of a role before maybe he's ready to graduate into a top six um, opportunity. So um, I think just it, the, the timing of Vancouver as far as building a third scoring line kind of helps out both Podkles and Hoglander just in the fact that I think more options for them open up in terms of how someone like Travis Green could deploy them. Um, I, I, think, I think both of them could quite conceivably uh, be battling for spots um, with the Canucks two years from now. So not that... Not, uh, next season, the year after. So, are there any other uh, Vancouver prospects that you you're really high on, or is that did we kind of cover all of them? Because I don't I don't know the Vancouver uh, kind of mm-hmm. prospect system. I know like the top top guys, but other than like other than those guys that we've talked about, I don't really know them that well. Yeah, um, I think after Pod Colson and um, and Hoglander, it, it it becomes a pretty. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a shallow pool, but sort of the high-end talent thins out pretty quickly after that, uh, mm-hmm. obviously in part because a lot of the top prospects have already graduated. I think among the players that um, the uh, that are elsewhere in the system, I think uh, Jack Rathbone really sticks out to me. He um, is uh, a 5'10 defenseman at uh, Harvard, um, really good skater, really mobile can can run a power play um, extremely well, um, and I think he sh- he just fits the mold of of the type of puck moving defenseman that uh, excels in the modern NHL game. And um, he's someone who uh, the Canucks are trying to sign um, this summer. And and if they can, it wouldn't surprise me if he's a year or two away from from being NHL ready. Um, I think beyond that, Ole Levy is uh, is a question mark. Obviously drafted fifth overall in 2016. His uh, his his progression hasn't gone as planned uh, um, just through, uh, through unfortunately, uh, uh, a bunch of injuries and battling through that. And he's had a lot of setbacks along the way. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how he progresses. I'm not uh, into the main guys at the top. Um, I think Jack Rathbone is, uh, is, is the one prospect that really sticks out to me. Awesome. So... I think this is the final. Oh no, I have two more questions. Uh, so I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about uh, management. So Jim Benning, obviously, he's been in charge of the Canucks now for, I want to say, four years now. Um, maybe I'm a little bit off on that. So I just wanted to kind of get your opinion on the job that he's done so far. 
so because I, I know like from my experience anyways and all the dms that we get we get like hundreds of dms every week and then on a bunch of different teams and one of the bigger teams that we get dms on are the canucks and i know notice that the fan base is very split on jim benning like some of them are very like okay no he's done such a great job he's done a great job drafting got us quinn he's got us besser got us patterson and none of those guys were you know like top one two three overall picks but all those guys could easily go in the top five and Pedersen not Quinn Hughes are arguably the best players in their draft years um so I kind of just want to get your opinion on what uh the job that Jim Benning's done and if you think he if does he deserve to keep his job if they Vancouver missed the playoffs for example yeah um I think it's um it is a pretty you can understand why it's so divided because obviously um, his work at the draft table speaks for itself. He's built up uh, a core here of um, sort of building out uh, elite talent at every position. He's got that high end center. Um, he's got that first line winger. Um, he's got that number one defenseman. And um, he's really sort of brought in and, and drafted and developed sort of the franchise cornerstones for this team for the next decade um, without, as you mentioned, uh, a lottery, you know, a top three pick. Um, and, and from a rebuilding perspective, that's obviously the, the most important part is being able to acquire that elite talent. Um, you look at a team like Arizona that for, for so long, they've, they've sort of been rebuilding and trying to build their team up since I think 2012, when they, uh, made the Western conference finals. And, and since then they've kind of tailed off, but, uh, a team like Arizona, they don't have that elite talent, and you can see just how much it it uh, sort of stunts their growth and development as a team, is they don't have those game breakers. And uh, Benning's been been uh, he's done a good job in being able to find those game breakers, and that's really important. Beyond that, it's it, the the track record is pretty questionable. I think if you look at uh, what he's done on the on the trade front. Um, a lot of, I think, and it extends to his free agent signings as well, is a lot of what he did in his first two or three years as general manager, I think it kind of stunted the rebuild. It kind of slowed it um, down. And um, and right now, Vancouver's obviously in a spot where they're right up against it um, cap-wise, despite the fact that their best players are are on bargains of, of contracts. I mean, you look at the, the top end talent. I mean, Pedersen's on an ELC, uh, Hughes is on an ELC, Besser's on a, on a bridge making less than 6 million, Horvath's making less than 6 million, JT Miller's making less than 6 million. All your best player players are on fantastic contracts. And despite that, the team's up against it cap wise. They're not in a position to be able to take advantage of Pedersen and Hughes being on their entry-level contracts and part of that is because they went out and signed Louis Erickson because mm-hmm. um, Benning went out and, and traded and extended for Brandon Sutter I mean you look at uh, even Sven Berchi's contract is is a bit of a hurdle right now for them Jay Beagles they're paying a four, fourth line forward three million dollars per year um, even even the town Myers contract the, I think that's one fault uh, fault there is um, building up the back end, Benning's had five years, and, and he hasn't been able, been able to take the take burden off of the likes of Alex Edler and Chris Tanev, and 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 because of that, he's forced to go out and spend six million dollars per year on Tyler Myers, who that type of contract is likely to age poorly in the long run. So um, there's a lot of good in in the fact that he's drafted and developed extremely well. That sort of 
that those are your main building blocks that in my opinion is the most important responsibility for, for a GM. Uh, but beyond that, his trade and, and free agent signing record has, has sort of dampened, dampened and, and kind of undermined uh, a lot of the elite talent that he, that he's been able to assemble. So I think, I think it's been a mixed, mixed bag. Um, and, 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 and for me anyway, if I, if I had to give a grade on it, it'd probably be a, a a C plus or a B minus for the work Benning's done in five years mm-hmm. as a general manager. I think his track record is improving over the last couple of years. Um, and, and really, I think his legacy on this team is going to be dependent on um, how he navigates the salary crunch, salary cap crunch this year. And, you know, obviously he has a ton of key and difficult decisions. You know, Markstrom versus Demko. Um, he, he's got to figure out uh, – uh, Tyler Toffoli's situation. Chris Tanev's uh, a pending UFA. Jake Vertanen is an RFA in line for a significant raise. He's got a lot of tough decisions, um, and he's gonna. His legacy is going to be dependent on. Yes, he's brought this elite talent in, but is he bringing this elite talent in and watching them grow and, and develop into a great NHL team that can eventually uh, compete for a Stanley Cup, or is he bringing in this elite talent and sort of weighing them down with anchors around around the key guys that he's brought in so i think um i I think a lot of his legacy a lot of a lot of the work that he's done to this point um is still to be determined and um a lot i think a lot of people will look back at this offseason as a turning point one way or another with this rebuild that's really well said um so have you ever gotten i always wonder about this have you ever gotten a chance to ask benning about like all these different free agent signings and kind of get like I guess his thought process behind his decision making there, because every time I see he, like every time before free agency, you just know that he's going to go in there and he's going to sign some some guy on the back end of his uh, of his uh, career, and he's going to sign him to big money for long term. Like you said, Jay Beagle, Anton Russell, so uh, Tyler Myers, all Louis Erickson. So have you ever gotten a chance to talk to him about all these kind of signs he made, and has he ever expressed? I wouldn't say regret, but saying, you know, I've made mis- like, has he acknowledged these mistakes, for example? Um, I, I think, um, I think as far as the acknowledgement side of things, the, the only sort of mistake that I think he has um, sort of uh, tried to make up for is obviously, and, and this wasn't even a signing, this was a trade, was the Erica Branson one in, in flipping um, him for Tanner Pearson. But beyond that, I think, um, I think for Benning's perspective on, on why he's made these signings, a lot of it ties back into um, just the initial rhetoric when he assigns a player. Uh, I think, for example, with Louis Erickson, uh, a lot of that was about trying to extend the window, give the Sedins someone who Benning thought would mesh well with them just based off of their international success together. And um, he lauded Erickson as, um, as obviously Erickson had scored 30 goals um, the year prior to signing, and, and he talked about, and Benning talked about Erickson as, uh, as a high and two-way winger. Um, when you talk about Jay Beagle and, and Antoine Roussel, I think a lot of that was about Benning trying to talk about trying to instill the, the right culture and, and bringing in veteran leaders that can sort of um, help the development of, of the younger of their younger players. And um, I think when you go back to Erickson um, in particular, and a lot of for example, the acquisition of Brandon Sutter, the trade, the initial trade for Eric Branson, a lot of it is because the team tried to retool in the first place. When Benning mm-hmm. initially took over, 
they made the playoffs the first year and they tried to keep that going. And, and, and that was a mistake. And uh, just in the sense of they needed to rebuild. And, and I think that the, the work that he kind of did in the first two, three years, as I mentioned, it, it sort of delayed the inevitable, the rebuild. And that's kind of costing them right now, where if they had played it right in the first place, this is a team where heading into next year, you're talking about them perhaps on a similar level as Colorado from a team building perspective is, mm-hmm. okay, they've assembled this elite talent. They've got this cap space. Their team on the come up. Vancouver's still in a relatively strong position. Um, but, I mean, you talk about those signings and decisions. I think a lot of them does tie back to the fact that they were trying to remain competitive when they probably should have just cut their losses and, and, and tried to go through an organic rebuild. So, so I think this is our last question now because I think we're at you know an hour fifteen ish minutes now. So I'm assuming you've gotten a lot of chances to like you just met, like talked to a lot of people in management, talked to people around the stadium, talked to people like in the front office basically for the Canucks. So I kind of wanted, and this was a very popular que- question for us. People want to know like how they can get jobs in the NHL. You know, get jobs in the front office. Like you know, get get into the get into the system, I want to say. So do you have any mm-hmm. advice? Like, have you talked to any of these people and kind of gotten their backstories and kind of figured out, you know, like how all these people got to where they were? Because I know a lot of our followers are just entering university right now. We're in high school right now. We're just about to leave university. And they're thinking, like, I want to work for an NHL organization. And I want to, and they kind of just want to figure out how to, how to get there. So do you have any advice for them or have any st- interesting stories there that you mm-hmm. can share? Uh, I think it's... Yeah, uh, I think if you look at uh, most of uh, most of most of the people that are in management, a lot of them already have ties to um, ties to hockey in, in one mm-hmm. one form or, no, or another. I mean, you look at Vancouver situation; their director of player development, um, Ryan Johnson, obviously played for the Canucks. Um, his assistant Chris Higgins played for the Canucks. Uh, Jim Benning um, was an NHL player for for quite some time. Um, John White. This broad had a bit of a unique path. Um, he's currently the assistant GM. Um, I think he went to Harvard, and then he was he was actually uh, the NBA GM of the Orlando Magic when Tracy McGrady was around, mm-hmm. and then he ended up being Calgary Calgary's assist, assistant GM. I, I think it is one of those um, things that is difficult to break into, uh, just because so much of it is 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 not what you know it's it's who you know just yeah. that common phrase a lot of it is about networking and i think for people that want to break into the industry i think um one of the things that you're noticing is um obviously a lot of people that do come in from the outside they're they're bloggers and and, and that's one of those things where um you, what i've seen anyway is and in discussions with other, with other you know coaches gms they read a lot um, they they want to know what other people are saying about the team. And um, I think that kind of goes hand in hand with trying to build up a following in, in just covering whatever team that, um, that you're a fan of or, or that you want to sort of provide analysis for. I think just sort of building up a following in the public domain and, and building an audience for yourself that way. I think that's a way to really capture the attention of people, people that are in organizations that are decision makers, because otherwise it is a little bit difficult. And I think um, ultimately once you do start blogging, that's when if, if you're good with, let's say video or, or analytics, that's when 
there are opportunities I've seen with, you know, junior clubs in the OHL or um, university teams or, or just other situations where um, you might, yeah, you might have to start doing um, essentially like an unpaid internship, but that's kind of how you have to break in and, and get to know people. And, you know, if, if you're, for example, if you want to be a, a video scout or, or something, um, you know, breaking down film and, and game tape and, and that sort of stuff, be a video coach, then, then I've seen, for example, you know, Rachel Dory, uh, she started, I think, with the Sudbury Wolves, and now she does analytics and video at York University. And obviously, she also worked for the New Jersey Devils. But it's one of those things where once you start at the lower levels at universities with junior clubs, that's when you kind of get to know other people. You, you can put that on your resume um, as a big thing just to show that you've worked in hockey before. Um, and then you can network from there. I think networking and getting to know as many people as you can in the industry is the most important factor for being able to break in and, and work for an NHL organization. Um, it's just obviously getting to that point where you can know the right people. It, it can be a bit of an obstacle. And, and to that extent, I'd say try and build up a following in the public domain. Um, and once you do have a little bit of that following, you can, you can try and look for opportunities working for a junior club or, or university, NCAA college, whatever it is. Um, that would be my kind of advice. Um, just if, if your goal is, is to work for an NHL organization one day. No, that was really, that was really good. I think I completely agree with what you said there. Cause you look at people like Eric Tolsky, for example, who's the, uh, director of analytics for, or is he, a, is he the assistant general manager now for the Carolina hurricanes? I, I don't remember, but regardless, like all those guys started out just doing their own analytics basically on online writing blogs and stuff like that. And there's a lot of people that are getting like scooped up by NHL teams right now because they have all this experience in analytics and that's kind of where the game's going. So I know a lot of our followers, actually a couple of them, they have like DM'd us their public tableaus and stuff like that, where they're making all these mm. really cool, uh, really cool like graphs and just different ways to evaluate teams and stuff like that. And I found it like so interesting seeing all these like really smart kids like kind of developing these things at like 18, 19. Some of them are just out of school right now and they're just trying to make their way. So I think like what you just said is really great advice. And I completely agree with you. Like just keep blog, like blogging, just getting your name out there connect and obviously connections. Like every job I've ever gotten has been through connections. It hasn't been through me, like just randomly applying for a job somewhere. It's always been like, I know mm -hmm. someone who knows someone or I know someone that works there and they hooked exactly. me up. Like all my, all my jobs basically and all the best jobs that I've ever had have come through those kinds of connect. Like I met, I didn't even, I wasn't even friends with Luke. <laughs> like we had mutual friends and then that's kind of, and then he's the one that convinced me to start this podcast, for example. And I wasn't going to start this until uh, we hit 10,000 followers, for example. But he kind of like, we met through mutual friends basically, even though we went to the same high school, right? And we kind of reconnected all these years later and really only became friends over the last, I'd say year basically, right? So, yeah. yeah, it's just like interesting. Like you, you, it's really connections at the end of the day that can get you the furthest. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. But uh, so I just want to say thank you so much for like taking the time. I know we kind of went over what I said. I said we'd be an hour, but you had a lot of really interesting stuff to say, and I kind of had a no lot of questions for you. But um, I just want to say thank you. So uh, just tell people like where they can find you, um, where where uh, where they can follow you, and everything like that, so that they can. Uh, you can get some uh, more views for your articles <laughs> and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, obviously I, um, I, I write at the uh, athletic Vancouver um, uh, on Twitter and, and Instagram. You can, uh, I'm pretty sure you can just search me by name, uh, Harmon dial. 
um, H-A-R-M-A-N, uh, last name T-A-Y-A-L, um, and it should pop up and where, where you guys can, uh, can find my work. Well, okay. Well, Luke, you can take us out now with your, uh, your usual outro. I don't even know what my, I don't even have a usual outro. I just wing it every single time, but uh, <laughs> thank you so much for being here, Harmon. Uh, it was great having you sharing all your information about the Canucks. Um, I know Eric kind of led a lot, a lot of the conversation cause he, I kind of stick to the Leafs mainly, but he's the one that knows a lot more general information. Um, but it was really great to hear your wisdom from how to get into the NHL as a writer um, to, you know, your experiences with the Canucks and, and your writing and definitely to see a guy so young and just like us, uh, it's, it's encouraging to the hockey community about what's kind of going on and, and how a young generation is still um, really interested in, in bringing a lot more personality, I guess, and, and analytics to uh, the industry. So we're really happy that you were able to uh, do this interview and uh, really fortunate to uh, have you as a guest. And we're really excited for our guests to hear it. Thank you so much, guys. All right. Cheers, man. All right. I'm uh... awesome.